This is Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. Now, here at Cup of Joe, we partner with the Community of Christ Historic Sites Foundation to interview the presenters from their spring and fall lecture series. So our guest today is John Charles Duffy. John Charles is a professor of American religious history with an earlier background in literary studies, which we didn't chat about before we started here. So maybe next time we will, John Charles. He's a member of Community of Christ Sacred Stories Ministries team. And in 2022, he organized an historic hymn fest for the 50th anniversary of the John Whitmer Historical Association. And for close to a decade, he has also organized a memorial service held each June 27 at the Joseph Smith Jr. gravesite in Nauvoo, Illinois. So welcome, John Charles. Welcome to you, or I guess I should say thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. This is uh, a repeat uh, guest appearance on Project Zion. You've been with us before and we've enjoyed having you. So we're really grateful you agreed to come back. So your contribution to this Historic Sites Foundation Fall Lecture Series is titled, There's an Old, Old Song, Hymns as Objects of Historic Restoration, which is intriguing, to say the least, for those of us who grew up singing those old historic restoration hymns. So you um, you offer a description of your lecture, and in it you say, when we think of historic restoration, we most readily think of buildings or other tangible objects, but hymns are an intangible cultural heritage that can be salvaged. And you have revised the hymn texts so that they will be compatible with Community of Christ's current theology, yet still evocative of the time in which the hymns were first written. That's a challenge. That is a challenge to do both of those things. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you how that worked out. But first, I want to start out with this question. Why? And what are the most important aspects about this that you wanted to, to be sure that you brought to people's attention? No, no. So as to the why, well, I, I love, I love music. I love singing. I love hymns. Hymns have long been a really important part of my spiritual practice. Uh, my background is that I was raised in the LDS church, uh, then became alienated as a young adult, left, kind of drifted around for a while, eventually found my way to community of Christ. Um, and during the period of my life, when I was beginning to detach from the community I had been raised in, uh, which was a very painful process, hymns were a source of great comfort to me. Um, yeah. I was going to bring in my university at the time, and on Friday evenings, I would find a classroom with a piano in it, of which there are many at BYU because they use classrooms for, for church services. And I would sit there, and for hours, I would play uh, hymns that I that I loved. So... Yeah, that's, uh, and a lot of the hymns I was playing were these sort of old Latter-day Saint hymns, you know, from the early period, some from Emma's hymnal that continue to survive into LDS hymnody. So I, I love these old hymns. And when I was asked to do the um, the hymn fest for the John Whitmer Historical Society, I was really excited about the idea. And then again, as you said, I've been for several years doing these memorial services on June 27th at the Joseph Smith Historic Site where every year on the anniversary of Joseph and Hiram Smith's deaths, we do a memorial service that brings together, you know, our staff there at the Joseph Smith Historic Site, which is a Community of Christ site, but also the um, the missionaries who are in Nauvoo for the LDS Church. We come together and we do a service that 
um, the Joseph Historic Site organizes. And again, I like to have historic hymns be part of that. And in particular, this last year, that was, uh, we, we, we had a really intensive musical component. Right. So yeah, um, I, I'm, because I'm LDS, what attracts me to community of Christ rather than any other kind of Christian community out there is precisely that we do have that, that heritage going back to Joseph Jr. and Emma and the ministry that they and other early saints were, were engaged in. And I, I value being rooted in, in that heritage, even though the way in which I relate to their understanding of what they were doing is, is different. I don't understand the great and marvelous work in quite the way that they did, but I still look to their teachings and the scriptures that Joseph Jr. produced and the hymns that people were writing back then. I look to them for images and teachings and principles that guide my understanding of what it means to be a disciple in the modern world. Okay. So we share some of that love of the old hymns. I'm not a musician, but my father is. And so I too steeped in the tradition of hymnody. So why don't you kind of walk us through some of the content from your lecture? Um, I want to make sure our listeners know that you can go and view the lecture on the Community of Christ Historic Sites Foundation webpage. They're all archived. And so if you want to see John Charles and the October 19th lecture, you'll find it there. So let's talk about that a little bit, John Charles. Great. So first of all, I'm going to share a visual here. For those who are with us in a visual form and able to see it, um, you have here a couple of, well, you're seeing the, the programs, the covers of the programs for the JWHA Hymn Fest, which was done in the temple in Independence. And then over on the right, you've got the cover for the, a book that I created to share the music and the script for the service of remembrance that was done at the Joseph Smith Jr. gravesite in Nauvoo back in 2023. Um, both of these documents are available online. Uh, we'll go ahead and put the URLs for that in the description of this podcast so people can download those programs and can use the historic hymns that are there as I have revised them if you'd like to use them in your own congregation or on other um, occasions where that would be appropriate. So let me talk a little bit about, let's, let's take a hymn as an example of, you know, how can you refurbish something from the past, which is not in line with our current theology, but could be made so with some thought. Mm -hmm. So let's start with this hymn here. There's a Feast of Fat Things. This is a hymn that was written by W.W. Phelps. He wrote a lot of the hymns that appeared in Emma Smith's 1835 hymnal. He okay, now wrote... just let me stop you there, John Charles, okay. and say this is not a happy hymn title. <laughs> Don't. This is not a hymn title that resonates to us to our modern uh, perspectives. But go ahead. Okay. Well. So okay. So okay. We we could have a conversation about why there's a feast of that thing. This doesn't necessarily. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's true. That's true. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yes. Although I, I, you threw me there a little bit because I have to say there are some W. W. Phelps hymns where from the title you know this is not going to be good theologically. Uh, no, this is actually this is this is actually a pretty a pretty a pretty nice. Um, Image we have to work with here. We'll talk more about where that image comes from. Okay. All right. Yes. Um, so, but Phelps wrote a number of early hymns. Uh, the Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning is his mm -hmm. work. 
Praise to the Man, the hymn in praise of Joseph Jr., written after Joseph Jr. was killed, was, was his work. So with this particular hymn, it's a missionary hymn, and it had 12 verses in its original version, plus a chorus. Um, you and I were chatting a little bit beforehand. You played a role, I believe, in helping to produce tw- the 2013 hymnal Community of Christ Sings. And you were commenting that some of these old historic hymns have a lot more verses than we sing today. Right. Um, I was reviewing content and some of it was rather frightening. <laughs> so it was a 12 verse missionary hymn. Um, and it, there's, you know, it, it, because there's 12 verses, there are a lot of different kinds of scriptural images being um, in- incorporated here. But the image that grabbed my attention and the thing that I became really excited about was there's a feast of fat things for the righteous preparing. And that is a reference to a passage from the Doctrine and Covenants. This is from section 58. This is a words of counsel given through Joseph Smith Jr. while he was in Independence, Missouri during the trip where he declared that this was going to be the center place. This would become the headquarters for the saints worldwide ministry. This is the place where they're going to build a temple. And in these words of counsel, the Lord tells the disciples gathered there that he has brought them here to independence so that they can lay the foundation of Zion. And then he goes on to say, and so that you can create a feast of fat things for the poor, a feast of fat things, of wine on the lees, well-refined, a supper of the house of the Lord to which all nations will be invited. And that language about the feast of fat things, the wine on the lees, well-refined, is itself an echo of a passage from the book of Isaiah, where in chapter five of That book, the prophet, is envisioning a future where in the mountain at Jerusalem where the temple is built, he's envisioning that the Lord is going to make what the prophet calls a feast of fat things, of wines on the lees well refined. And so it's this image of God creating abundance. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, it becomes especially abundance for the poor. And that's an image that I, that speaks very strongly to me. Um, my current understanding of my Christian discipleship has been shaped partly by liberation theology, a form of 20th century Christian thought, which emphasizes the idea that the gospel should be good news for the poor. It should be good news for the oppressed. We as Christians should be working to abolish poverty, as we say in our mission initiative. And I think this image captures that, this image that Zion is about preparing this feast for the poor ending poverty, creating a world where the poor can enjoy abundance, a feast to which everybody is invited. Um, and the, 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 the verse in Doctrine and Covenants goes on to say it should be everyone who's coming to this feast, the rich, the learned, the wise, the noble, the poor, the blind, the deaf, everybody, the people who are social elites, as well as the people who our society often marginalizes or treats as less than. They are all invited to this feast. So the fact that we have this hymn, which is focusing on that image, is one I really like. But there are other things going on in this hymn that aren't so great. So here's the first verse of the hymn, as W.W. Phelps wrote it. There's a feast of fat things for the righteous preparing, that the good of this world all the saints may be sharing. For the harvest is ripe, and the reapers have learned to gather the wheat, that the tares may be burned." And then the choir goes on, the choir goes, come to the supper, come to the supper, come to the supper of the great bridegroom. 
So I really love like the first half of that verse that talk about the feast and the good will be shared. And then we get this other metaphor about the harvest and it's time to gather the wheat and then you need to go burn the tares. And at that point, we have a very different thing happening in the camp. At that point, of course, he's drawing on passages from Jesus' parables, right. um, images of divine judgment. And Phelps loved images of divine judgment. He had a very apocalyptic sensibility. He had this very strong sense that it was going to end soon. He talks about this in a lot of his hymns. The day is coming when the wicked will burn. In one of his hymns, he... He talks about the fact that the wicked will burn. And then one line later, he says that this is glad tidings. He loves the idea of the wicked burning. And for me, that's a big problem, right? That's not, the apocalyptic element of our tradition is one that I've had to kind of work out a relationship to. I think there's like a message there, a promise of God undoing forces of oppression and injustice, which, you know, that speaks to me. But I think we need to be really careful about celebrating or glorying in the thought of God wiping out the people we don't think are are just. And I'm not particularly interested in singing that. So that was something I was definitely going to get rid of when I revised this hymn. So what I did, and when I said about doing this, I, I tried to be very disciplined about it. So it wasn't just a question of, okay, I don't like these words. They're gone. I'm going to make up something new. What I did was I tried to go back to other parts of the hymn and see, okay, I don't like that particular part of this verse. Let's go through like the 12 other verses of the song. And is there something else I can plug in there instead? Like, where do I find words in this hymn that do still speak to me that are aligned with the values of community of Christ today? And I can plug that in instead. So I'm still being true to Phelps's language and true to aspects of his vision. Um, and so in that sense, my historical refurbishment of this hymn is happening in a historically faithful way. And what I end up doing with this particular verse, my version goes like this. There's a feast of fat things for God's people preparing, that the good of the earth all alike may be sharing. And a call to the nations from Zion goes forth, come all to the feast of the house of the Lord. And those of you who are actually looking at these words on a screen, maybe you can see what I changed. A couple of things here in his first version, his version of the first lines go, there's a feast of fat things for the righteous preparing. Yes. I noticed that right off. That the good of the earth, the saints may be sharing. Right. And I changed that, you know, and what I did here was I chose language that, I mean, what's happening here is that Phelps is a sectarian. He has this really strong sense of I belong to the one true church and everybody else is wicked. And so the good of the earth is for, it's for us. It's for my group, not for the other groups. And, you know, that's, that's not how I understand God. I think God's grace flows more generously than that, more abundantly than that. But I, I chose language that I thought Phelps could still say yes to. I mean, I think Phelps would say, yes, the Feast of Fat Things is prepared for God's people, which is what I plugged in for instead of the righteous. My understanding of who God's people is, is I think broader than Phelps' understanding. Right. But the language is one that I think Phelps would still be able to, to say yes to. Then the second part where I changed it from, I got rid of that whole business about the tares and the, the burning and the wheat and all that. I went to, in this case, I actually had to go to a different Phelps hymn because there wasn't anything in this particular hymn I found helpful. But I went to another Phelps hymn 
And I found this verse he had about a voice going forth. And I kind of adapted that to fit into the context here, put that in. The part about coming to the feast of the house of the Lord, which is how I finished up this verse. That comes from another verse in this hymn. And so now we have a verse that can, I hope, speak to community of Christ's identity today. I did something similar with that for like several of the verses here. So I took what was initially a 12 verse hymn. I turned it into a four verse hymn. And so we're still using, you know, the, we're still using Phelps's words, Phelps's images, but we've sifted through it. We found the ones that can still resonate with us today, given our own theological understanding and our own emphases, letting the other stuff go. And now we have, I hope, a hymn that I would love to see Community of Christ Congregation singing this hymn again as a way of tapping into this image from the very beginning of our faith tradition's history. This image of those disciples and independents imagining we are here to lay the foundation of Zion and prepare this feast of abundance for the poor and for all people. So that's one example of how I played around with these hymns. So I love the fact that you actually use Phelps's words, even if it came from other places, to maintain the integrity of of his work. It it's interesting to hear that that it was a repeat idea for him. This apocalyptic, the wicked will burn idea was um, was a theme that resonated with him. But was he out of the kind of Puritan culture of Congregationalist in? in the New England area? Is that where this, some of this? You know, good question. I don't, I don't recall exactly what his background had been. What was his religious background prior to coming to, to the saints, but independent of what it will, whether he's a Baptist or a congregationist or what have you, he's clearly someone for whom that, that, that kind of millennialism Mm -hmm. uh, was very appealing. You know, he's someone who is very dissatisfied with the state of the existing world and there's this longing for God to intervene and, obliterated by fire and start over start over afresh you know and as i'm sitting here in judgment of phelps i I should say by way of trying to be more humble here you know i i i I can certainly resonate with you know there are things going on in our world that that i hate you know there are structures of injustice and there are structures of oppression and there are huge, huge, seemingly insoluble problems in this world. And so I can, I can very much relate to and empathize with the, the desire to just burn it down, as people say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what the apocalyptic tradition offers people. It's, it's, a, it's a stream within our scriptural tradition, which appeal to people, especially people who are going to persecution. And it's this, this stream in our scriptures, you see in the book of Revelation, for example, that offers a vision of God's work, which says, you know, God does have a zeal for justice. All this oppression, all this injustice is not what God wants. God does want to make a world where it's going to go away. The apocalyptic tradition, though, ultimately imagines that happening through a kind of divine intervention. And we just have to, like, hold on, grip white knuckle, be faithful until that intervention comes. That's not my understanding of how God works in the world. You know, I understand it as we have to make these things happen. You know, God depends on us to bring about this better world. And so that element of the apocalyptic tradition does not speak to me. But again, I can empathize with that incredible frustration and that kind of feeling of of helplessness of living in the face of these enormous powers that have to be toppled. And that's, you know, that's what appealed to Phelps. You know, this, this idea of wanting to see a very different world. And in his case, imagine what happened when Jesus comes back and the wicked burn. 
So let's look at another example. Yeah, let's take it for him. Let's try. Um, this is a hymn that was not familiar to me as an LDS person. It's one that I only encountered after coming to the of Christ. And even then I didn't encounter it until I began looking at historic hymns. In fact, I believe that Andrew Bolton probably introduced me to this hymn via a hymn fest that he and I did at one point. This is the angel message, um, also known as I Have Found the Glorious Gospel. This is a distinctively reorganization hymn. You're smiling. So is this a hymn that you grew up singing? Oh, I sang point? it when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this hymn was written by an RLDS man named James Edwards. And then the music that we have always used for it was created by an RLDS composer named Henry Mills. I don't think it survived past the gray hymnal, which was used in the 1950s. So by the time you get to Hymns of the Saints, which was produced by the RLDS Church in the 1980s, the last hymnal created before the name change to Community of Christ, it already dropped out. And you can see why when you look at the hymn. But it was a very popular hymn in its day. So I was interested in seeing if we could salvage this thing. So here's how the first verse of the hymn goes in its original form. I have found the glorious gospel that was taught in former years with its gifts and blessings all so full and free. And my soul is thrilled with gladness and banished are my fears since the precious angel message came to me. And then there's a chorus that goes, then praise the Lord, O my soul, abundant mercy, oh, how free, in joyful song, thy spirit doth accord, says the precious angel message came to me. Uh, let me let me read through the second verse as well to kind of give a continuation of the flavor of the hymn. The second verse goes, I wandered long in darkness, yet sought the narrow way, and my life was like the surging of the sea. But now I am rejoicing in this the latter day, since the precious angel message came to me. So what we have here is a song which is basically celebrating the restoration of the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has that sectarian sensibility that we are the true church. All the others are false. In our day, the one true church has been restored. We are it. And also there's this kind of... Uh, Edwards, you know, he has this really kind of strong, the way he paints the, 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 the picture, the singer and the hymn is constantly contrasting their life before they enter the church to their life after. And it's a very dramatic night versus day kind of transformation. I used to be in darkness and I'm basking in the light. My life used to be miserable and now it's oh so great. And so I think there are a couple reasons this hymn eventually was set aside. One, that sectarian dimension to it. You know, by the time you get into the 1980s, the reorganization church, the reorganized church's theology is shifting. We're less sectarian. We're not committed into the anymore to the notion that we are the one true church. And also, I think just the the simplicity of that worldview of everything was great, everything was dark, and now I joined the church. Everything's great. You know, our lives are not that simple. In fact, our lives are a lot more complex. And the compilers of later hymnals, I think, found this hymn uncomfortable for that reason. But it's a really bouncy and exciting hymn. I mean, I'm just reading the words here. But the melody is much more enthusiastic and rousing. Is the tune the one that in the uh, red hymnal became Send Me Forth a Blessed Master? Because that's the one I remember for the verses. I don't know Send Me Forth a Blessed Master. I'm literally grabbing my it's in community christ sings but it has different words to it but it's um oh 
No. No, yeah, okay. yeah. So seventy fourth the blessed master, seventy fourth the blessed master, there are souls in sorrow about, and seventy fourth to homes of want of homes of care. No, it's okay. not that hymn, though it is that it's that same kind of rousing camp meeting reunion style. Right. Uh this hymn, the tune goes. Uh let's see. Now well now I have that tune in my head now. I, know. I have, to, Sorry. have to recover the other hymn now. I have found the glorious gospel that was taught in former years. Ah, uh, yes. The blessings bountiful and free. I think about the original words. And my soul is thrilled with gladness and banished are my fears since the precious angel message came to me. Then praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Abundant mercy, O oh how free in joyful song thy spirit doth accord since the precious angel message came to me. Yes, yeah, so I think it's sad we lost the ra- the rollicking joyful tune. Yeah. yeah. And you know what I like about this hymn again is someone who's interested in trying to find ways to help contemporary community of Christ tap back into the earlier phases of our tradition. You know the idea of the angel message is one that remains important to me. The idea that I belong to a particular religious community, which has its origins at a particular historical moment, the early 1800s, the world was being transformed. It was becoming what we know as the modern world. The industrial revolution was beginning, which would eventually transform the globe. Our world is rapidly changing. We have a whole bunch of new challenges as a result. And at precisely that moment of global transformation, God reaches out and finds a receptive community of people who are seeking, who are seeking a new outpouring of continuing revelation, who are seeking for an outpouring of God's spirit to be able to do God's work in the world. And that becomes us. We become a community. And I don't think we're the only community God's working through, but we are a community that God is working through. And our community began because people back in the early 1800s were looking responded to God's call and heard that call anew. And that, I find that exciting. The idea, so this, this image of, you know, the angel blowing his trumpet again in our day, bringing this, this new message, this new book to share with the world that reaffirms the old gospel, but at the same time is speaking to the new challenges of today. That, that image of who we are as a community is what I find very exciting. So I wanted to see if, you know, can I find a way to take this idea of the angel message and make it speak in a way that isn't sectarian and that, you know, is also recognizing the nuances of our lives. You know, when embracing one church does not suddenly solve all your problems. In this case, so as I, when I was working with the Phelps hymn, my strategy there had been to try to stick with the original writer's words as much as I could. With this hymn, I decided to do something different. I decided I was going to be a lot freer about um, revising the author's original language, but I still set some limits for myself. And one of those limits was I decided to keep the author's original rhymes. So I got kind of anchored what I could do. I had to keep the original rhymes. So in this first verse, the key rhymes are years and fears, and then free and me. I was going to keep those rhymes. And then the other thing was, I wasn't just going to like make up new content. What I did was I went to the angel message. I went to the Book of Mormon. 
And I looked for passages or stories in the Book of Mormon. And also I kind of folded into that Joseph Jr.'s uh, Grove experience where he's going to seek and he has that, that first vision that, you know, that where he, he feels called uh, to do God's work in the modern world. I, I took that story as well. And so that for me is the angel message. It's those two stories. The Grove experience is the Book of Mormon. And so I went to those stories to look for themes, language that I could use for the new hymn. And so my revision of verse one looks like this. I have found the glorious gospel that was taught in former years with its gifts and blessings bountiful and free. And a voice of hope and gladness allays my doubts and fears since the precious angel message came to me. And that phrase of voice of hope and gladness, um, that's a phrase that I immediately recognize <laughs> because I created it, but also because I grew up with that phrase in a way that I think a lot of people in the community of Christ didn't because it comes from a section of doctrine and covenants that still appears in LDS editions, but not in community of Christ editions. It's one of the uh, sections having to do with baptism for the dead. That was, oh, it went uh, to the appendix. And then yeah, it went to the appendix and then like disappeared. Which is a great shame because this particular section has this wonderful passage at the end. It's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a psalm at the end, which begins, what do we hear in the gospel that we have received? A voice of gladness. Then it goes on in this kind of poetic fashion and it, it evokes the idea of what well, we've heard a voice from Camorra and we heard the voice of this angel and this angel and the voice of God speaking to us at this moment. It's a catalog of all the ways in which early on in our faith community's history, people felt that they were receiving revelation uh, to guide them in this new venture they were undergoing. It's a great passage. And that's the passage I was alluding to here. Um, and so the voice of hope and gladness um, that to me, it, it immediately resonates. Um, and, it's, and it's an image that I hope people can still relate to. Again, the original words were, my soul is thrilled with gladness and banished are my fears which is that kind of like, oh, everything's great now. And I'm like, well, everything's not great, but we are still hearing a voice that's calling us to hope. We're still hearing a voice that is giving us gladness, that is easing our doubts and giving us hope to face the, the great challenges ahead. So, Let's show it with verse two. Yeah, what are you Karen? So I like this one less and I'll tell you why. Okay. <laughs> Some of our listeners. So I'm, I grew up steeped in that kind of restoration, one and only true church, Joseph Smith, worship to almost idolatry if you will um and i have never been comfortable with that nor have i ever been really comfortable with um restoration scripture but so when i saw the verse both how it was written and how you revised it where it connected for me and it did immediately because i just finished writing four projects i and podcast coffee to go outlines for advent was this is the shepherd's hymn I don't know the hymn. Fill me in. No, no. I mean, if you look at just these words, this would be the hymn the shepherds would, when they went, the angel came, the choir sang, terrified, and then they went and told others, that is this. This is so that becomes the angel message is. for you, right? The yeah. declaration that the Savior has come. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So that's where my, that's where I can connect with it because I, I, I don't connect with the other aspects that, that, that do um, connect for you yeah, and yeah. for many of our listeners. So this is disappointed sigh. I, I, I would, I would love to somehow be able to convert you to be, being able to find, I understand why it's difficult. <laughs> I would love to help you be able to find a positive meaning in 
you know, the angel who appears in the ninth, the eighteenth, the nineteenth century with a new message for the world. But no, that's fine. If 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 you're able to, if the if the angel at the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem works for you, that's fine. We'll, we'll it start does. there. We'll work. It there. does. It right. wor- that works for me. That was my connection because I was living in those scriptures for several days. So, so here's what I did with verse two. And here's an example of where I kind of pulled stories or language from the book of Mormon in to replace what he had originally. Again, here's the original verse two. I wandered long in darkness, yet sought the narrow way. And my life was like the surging of the sea. But now I am rejoicing in this the latter day, since the precious angel message came to me. So notice the rhymes there, way, day, see me. So here's what I did. There are times I pass through darkness when I cannot find my way, like a ship without a compass lost at sea. But I know to all who ask, God sends light in this our day, since the precious angel message came to me. Yeah. The lines, there are times I pass through darkness where I cannot find my way. I was thinking there of um, early in the Book of Mormon, a man named Lehi has a dream which involves people stumbling through darkness, trying to find their way to the, the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, God gives them a way to find their their path. Uh, like a ship without a compass lost at sea. That's, again, another Book of Mormon story. Mm-hmm. Um, God provides a miraculous compass to help people make a journey across the sea. At one point, they stop listening. The compass stops working. They lose their way until they, you know, pay attention again. I know to all who ask, God sends light in this our day. That's the moral that Joseph Jr. explicitly drew in one account of his Grove experience. You know, his experience lacking wisdom, going to God to ask, having this vision that guided him, he takes from that the message that anyone who lacks wisdom can go to God and get it. And so that's, again, my take on the angel message. Those are ideas that I hear in the Book of Mormon, in the Grove experience that I find meaningful, not sectarian. And again, not saying like, everything's great now, but... Bearing testimony to the way in which, yes, I do feel that as I'm turning to God, as I'm turning to scripture, as I'm turning to continuing revelation, I do feel guided. I'm able to find my way through this world. So as a as a person who serves in the office of 70, the whole idea of changing them from being exclusive to inclusive is um, is, I think, a gift that you bring with some of the changes that you've made in these. Great. So that's that's what I was doing. Um, we got a chance to sing both of these hymns when yeah. I was doing the hymn fest. I, you know, it, because it was Zoom, I was able to hear people singing, but I hope they they had fun doing it. I'm sure there were people there who had not sung. Um, I have found the glorious gospel, the angel message, for a long time, but who were familiar with the the tune. And I hope that you know, again, this is I would love to see congregations reviving this. Um, I, I would hope that my new lyrics are ones that that work better with our current theology and allow us to tap back into the enthusiasm that this song represented for people. Well, I think it also allows people to find some value in the content of Restoration Scripture as opposed to the historicity of Restoration Scripture, which is yes. where I continue to support Restoration Scripture in the sense that the content has value. Right, right. And that's what you've done with um, with some of this. So I appreciate that as well. And I did have a flashback to my old congregation when I was growing up, all you Auburn, Washington people, and he- hearing the ladies at the alto sing the harmony. And <laughs> I could just hear it in my head, some of those voices. So 
that was a, a wonderful moment. A reminder to folks that these hymns, you know, my revisions of them are available. If you go to the URLs that are listed in the description for the podcast, you can download the hymns that I use both at the Hymn Fest for the JWHA at the Temple of Independence and for the memorial service in Nauvoo. Uh, there's some other gems here, just, just a list of the things you'll find in these programs. For the JWHA Hymn Fest, I scoured not just the Community of Christ tradition going back to the 1830s, but I was also looking in the hymnals of Sidney Rigdon's church, which he founded after he broke with the movement after Joseph Jr.'s death. I was looking through Bickertonite hymnody. I was looking through um, Strangite hymnody. And so yeah, I was really excited to be able to pull together gems from, from those, you know, our cousins in the restoration, as it were. And then for the, the memorial service in Nauvoo, the special theme was the Book of Mormon. And some of the, the gems there are uh, one hymn text, which I don't think really survived past much past the Nauvoo era. Um, so that was kind of, that was kind of fun to be able to revive. Uh, there's a hymn by Joseph III in praise of the Book of Mormon, um, which I did some refurbishing to, which I don't think has been sung since the 19th century. Yeah. Um, so it was fun to be able to actually, you know, hear people singing versions of hymns that really had fallen into disuse, but that I hope are still meaningful to folks. So I love this whole idea. It's what we've done in our journey in Community of Christ from the beginning. We've refurbished things to make them work for where we are now in this part of our adventure as a faith community. So did you learn anything new when you prepared this lecture? Was there something that just stuck out to you as, oh, I had not noticed that before? Um, not so much that, but I, it, I did have kind of a clearer sense. And I was trying to explain to people like, like my motive for doing it. I was, I was called back to words in Doctrine and Covenant Session 161, uh, words accounts received through Grant McMurray. In fact, this is basically, these were the first words of counsel we received after the name change. And there's a line there that says we need to be respectful of tradition. Mm-hmm. And the con is to go on and say, you know, we need to, of course, to change. We need to update for the times. But there's that, that caution of, and then bear in mind, those words of counsel were coming to us right after a few decades after the 1960s, when we had made a major transformation. I think it really it's, it's it's significant that in both section 161 and 162 we get calls to not lose sight of our past and to be respectful of the past. Be respectful of tradition. We're told in 161, and then 162 has a passage that's very famous for people in the historical community about listening to your journey as a people because it has many things still to teach you. Um, and I think it's it's I think it's noteworthy that at the outset of the 21st century, after this major transformation we had gone through, there's this kind of caution to not devalue our own past mm-hmm. you know find ways to continue to make that past useful to you yes you've transformed and that transformation has you know brought about new good things and put you on a new trajectory but there are still things from the past you need to take with you on this journey and that's i guess essentially what i'm trying to do with these hymns trying to find ways to make that old tradition speak to us today on our new journey Spoken as a true historian and member of that community of Christ uh, history <laughs> and sacred story team. <laughs> so thank you for that. So uh, my next question, John Charles, is more of a personal question for you. And that is, how has your study of the historical humanity and really your love for 
the historical hymnody shaped your own discipleship where you are right now? Yeah. When you look at an old hymn and you have to figure out like, why does it make me wince? It helps you gain clarity about your own understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. Um, but it, it's, there's also an exercise there where, and I, I modeled this earlier in this presentation when I was kind of, I sort of like dissed on Phelps apocalypticism, but then kind of shifted gears and said, but okay, let me be more empathetic toward it. There's a humility involved, mm-hmm. right? There's on the one hand, I, I feel really strongly that as disciples, especially as disciples in this community, as disciples in a community that has really undergone a major change because who we are now is in many ways very different from who our forebears were. We have to have the confidence to trust where we feel the spirit is taking us now. And that means when I'm looking at those old hymns and going through that wincing process, I need to be able to have the confidence to say no to that element of the tradition. I think I hear the spirit calling me a different way, but there is also that call to humility. The very fact that I'm engaging with these hymns at all and going back to them to say, okay, what can I learn from the past? Where is there something here that can inspire me today? I think it's a really helpful dynamic. You and I are recording this on November 3rd. So we just got done celebrating Halloween which in the Christian liturgical calendar is All Saints Day and All Souls Day, two days in which Western Christians traditionally recall disciples from the past Mm -hmm. who have gone before us in our tradition. And those days call the church to remember that we in the present, we alone are not the Christian community. We are part of a community of generations of people before us. Um, And there should be an appropriate gratitude and humility about that. And that's, I guess, at this particular moment of the year, I happen to be thinking a lot about that. And what I was doing with these hymns is very much in that, in that spirit. We're a communion of saints and that communion of saints is not just all of us here in the present, trying to figure out how to be one united church, despite our differences we are a communion of saints that includes the dead, those who have gone before us. And a great cloud of witnesses to be a great cloud of witnesses, right? Personal. Yes. And we need to still be one community. Um, you know, eventually, God willing, we will all be together in heaven and we will again be one united community. And that means that we here in the present need to be able to achieve oneness with those of us who were in the past we can't divorce ourselves from them we can't cut the tie we have to find ways just in in much the same way that in the present we have to find ways to reach out across our theological divide so we can be one community and work together to do christ's will in the same way we have to with, with our own past we have to find ways to reconnect with the people in our past from whom we have become in certain ways estranged because of our theological differences and disagreements yeah and that that does seem to be the contemporary way to handle things is if we theologically disagree or disagree in any sociologically, politically, we simply excise the others from cancel as people our, like to say yeah. these days. Yeah. Instead of instead of connecting. So um you mentioned Doctrine and Covenants 161, 162, and um 
and how important you think that is for listeners to heed that advice. But what is one thing when you did this lecture that you really hoped people would take away from it? I mean, um, obviously for me, it's some kind of um, reconciliation with the restoration <laughs> scripture. So we don't need to go there, <laughs> but other people, John Charles. Well, that, that is, that is the big thing. I mean, it really, it really was fundamentally about, about that. Um, yeah. And when I do this for the Joseph Smith, well, I'm sorry, when I do this for the John Whitman Historical Society, when I do the lecture for the Historic Science Foundation, I'm preaching the choir there because I'm talking to people who do, in fact, love the past, right? <laughs> the challenge for me is, you know, uh, you know, how do I, because I'm aware that there are many people in community Christ today who just, that's not, the past is not what's of interest to them. And I, and I get that. Um, <laughs> and I feel judgy about it because I think that's very sad. Um, you know, and I would, I would like to try to get, you know, it's, I, I'm the nerd who's excited about this particular piece of the tradition. And I would really love to see people get more excited about it. So what really excited me about the, the lecture was, you know, people are in the, in the chat, you can see people commenting and how much they're enjoying connecting with these old hymns. And, and I hope that people are having, you know, not just a nostalgic experience there, but the real, that, that, that there's a spiritual practice there. I'm hoping that's a really spiritual experience for people. And I would love to be able to share that, you know, the sense of spiritual nourishment that I find connecting with these hymns, mm-hmm. I would love to be able to share with other people. That's well, the takeaway for me. As a as a fellow lover of history, although happy to share the parts I don't love, um, I appreciate your words on that because I too want the restoration story and the connections with that to be something that people appreciate, which is why we do Cup of Joe, you know, to help people hear more, hear more about it, learn more about our own tradition, our own story, our own journey. So before we close, I want to give you the opportunity. Do you have any closing thoughts and wise words you would like to share with our listeners? <laughs> wise words I do not feel qualified to <laughs> offer. Um, I, I, you know what? I think, I think probably the best way for me to conclude is just to repeat the words of counsel we got through Grant McMurray. Be respectful of tradition. Listen to our journey. Listen to our past. Again, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with our passing judgment and deciding that this and this and this, that doesn't work for us anymore. But at the same time, there needs to be that humility of continuing to listen and being surprised sometimes by ways in which something you hadn't expected to speak to you suddenly does. Marvelous. Well, I want to thank you very much for being willing to come and visit with us here at Cup of Joe today. I um, I want you to know you can look for an invitation about the time World Conference 2025 rolls around to come and visit the um, combined quorum experience of all the quorums of 70 together. That would be a great place to sing some of these new, more inclusive, invitational versions of these historic hymns. So maybe we can get you to come and share in that way with that group. I would love that. So in the meantime, for our listeners, we encourage you to view this lecture, as I mentioned before, at historicsitesfoundation.org. This and all the other lectures from the fall 2023 series are available there in the archives. This is Cup of Joe, part of Project Zion podcast. I'm Karen Peter. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 